Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. My name is Dana, and I am joined by my regular co-host for this series. Mike, how are you today, sir? I am doing well, Dana. Thank you. Excellent. Well, this is going to be volume 15. Just a recap, volume 14, we focused on the 1970s, and we've decided that with volumes 15 and volume 16, we're going to go 1960s and 1950s. And what I think is interesting about this is as we go deeper back into the century, I think you and I are going to run into a lot more of, oh, I haven't seen that type. I haven't seen that film yet. So I'm pretty excited for this one. What do you think, Mike? Absolutely. We started this show. You came up with the idea for this show because you're always talking about your co-workers that haven't seen these movies that are classics. Well, if they haven't seen some of the ones we've recommended, they're definitely not watching these movies that we're going to recommend the next couple of weeks. So I'm excited to get them out there and make these recommendations so that hopefully some people who haven't seen them actually check them out. Absolutely. Okay, so the floor is yours. What is your first pick for volume 15 of the 20th Century Movie Club? So my first pick might be uh, kind of a bit more, I don't even want to say obscure because it is a well-known, well-respected movie, but it's probably one that not a ton of people have seen. But it gives me a chance to talk about one of my absolute favorite directors of all time, and that is a French director by the name of Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh, Dana, are you familiar with Melville at all? I'm certainly familiar, but I would not call myself a uh, student of his work. So for those who haven't, heard of Melville. He was sort of the grandfather of the French new wave. You know, the the wave in the 60s in France that gave us uh, Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut. You know, they, they kind of changed modern cinema as we know it. Melville was a very, very influential filmmaker. He died relatively young. He died at the age of 55 in 1973. And so he didn't get the body of work that a lot of those other French new wave filmmakers got. But what he did do was significant significantly influence a later group of filmmakers. Uh, the people that consider Melville uh, either their favorite filmmaker or one of their prime influences, John Woo, Ringo Lamb, Johnny Toe, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, Michael Mann, Walter Hill, Quentin Tarantino. I mean, these are some of the most important directors of the last 50 years, and all of them pay homage to Melville. The first movie that I'm going to recommend is one of Melville's lesser known ones simply because of circumstance. And it's 1969's uh, Army of Shadows. Army of Shadows is based uh, loosely on a book by Joseph. Well, not it's based strictly on a book by Joseph Kessel, but Kessel based the book loosely on his own experiences in the French resistance. And Melville was in the resistance as well. And what this movie is basically about is a resistance cell in Paris during the Nazi occupation of France. Paris and Marseille, it kind of goes all over France and just what they do, their operations, how they operate, the things they're trying to do. It's not heavy on plot. It's definitely heavy on sort of atmosphere and character, but it's just following these resistance members as they go through their various missions over the course of a handful of months. And what I really, really love about it is while the resistance members are definitely the heroic members of the movie, they are there. There's no like romance or nostalgia about what they do. It is a very, very hard, realistic look at how something like a resistance operates. The the nasty choices they have to make, the borderline 
immoral and unconscionable decisions and actions that they take for, you know, what amounts to the greater good. I mean, I think we can all agree that, you know, ridding your country of Nazis is probably the greater good, but you don't do that by being a nice person. And this movie really dives into that where none of these people are going to end, whether regardless of what happens to them in the movie, I'm not spoiling anything. You just know these people aren't going to have happy endings to their lives. Um, And I think the movie does a fantastic job of really conveying that have you seen army of shadows i i haven't but i you know i have a couple questions for you on this one this is this is interesting because i think the subject of we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about the Hayes code as far as you know restrictions that were laid upon films that were produced and shown in the united states me being someone who's not really familiar with the french new wave cinema i have to ask the question how does this movie, as far as what, what kind of rating would this film have? I know it's a, a French movie, but but what what type of things would they get away with in 1969 French cinema? And and does those things apply to this movie? This is actually a bit more restrained. You know, Melville was was a quite a bit more of a. Uh, an inward turning director. He was almost kind of a cold director. He's very Kubrickian in that sense. I realistically, this would get rated an R just because of adult themes. It's not particularly violent. There's a, a tiny bit of nudity, but not very much. But it is definitely a movie for adults. And knowing the MPAA, I think they would probably rate it as an R. But it might be one of those that were like, this is an R, really. Um, it, it's not currently rated uh, because it, it never got re-rated on its re-release. But it, it, it would definitely fall into that category and it's definitely the kind of movie that i think the hayes code on one hand the hayes code would have supported it and and like you said we'll talk more about the hayes code uh especially uh some of our upcoming recommendations. But, you know, the Hayes Code would have been fine with a movie about the French resistance. What it wouldn't have been fine with is the reality of the decisions and the actions that these resistance characters take. Uh, This is a minor spoiler because it's the very start of the movie. Uh, The movie more or less kicks off. There's a prologue and then it more or less kicks off with our heroes murdering a suspected traitor in an abandoned apartment. And it's a very, very cold, you know, they they can't shoot the traitor because there's neighbors and so they have to strangle him. And I mean, you get more or less the strangling, he doesn't pull away from the shocking nature of the violence. And that I think the Hayes Code would have had a problem with. And I think that's why it would get an R today. Melville's thing, and this is one of the ways you can really tell that Tarantino and Scorsese were influenced by Melville. Melville's thing was sort of long moments of quiet punctuated by brief but shocking moments of violence. And that That happens throughout Army of Shadows several times. And so you can see where like Scorsese, you know, that's kind of one of Scorsese's bread and butters too, right? Violence always comes out of the blue. It's shocking. It's overwhelming. And then it's done in his movies. Um, So, yeah, I think it would be an R for sure. And is this a good jumping off point? For the director's filmography, I think so. I, I think it's a, it's a, it's probably his best movie. He's famous for making a bunch of French crime dramas. Uh, one of the most famous ones is called Les Samurai, uh, starring his frequent star, uh, a French actor named Alain Delon. I know you guys add. Ashley mentioned him in the interview with a vampire uh, episode as kind of 
the platonic ideal of who should have played Lestat. And she's not wrong on that. Alain Delon was amazing. Uh, probably the coolest actor who's ever lived. He doesn't star in this one, but this one is, I think, a good starting point. Part of the reason I'm recommending this movie, and I know I'm droning on a little bit here, I'll try and make this quick, is for those who don't know, there is a publication in France called the Cahiers du Cinéma. It's really sort of the tastemakers for cinema in France. And when this movie came out, they trashed it. They hated it because of a couple of things. There was a student revolt in May 1968 that then President Charles de Gaulle uh, was viewed as handling poorly. De Gaulle's kind of a somewhat heroic figure in this movie. They didn't respond well to that. And it kind of just disappeared. And then they reevaluated it in the 90s. And again, Cahiers du Cinema, I'm not a huge fan of the way they view movies, but there's no question they're influential. They did a reappraisal and called it Melville's Masterpiece. That led to a full restoration in 2006, and that's how people have now been able to see this movie. So it's why it's not as well known as some of his other movies, but I think it's his best one. And so I do think it is a, a good starting point. The last thing I want to say about Melville, for people who are wondering if you should see his movies, uh, in 2017, the New Yorker's Anthony Lane did a full retrospective of his films, and he had this quote, and it is one of the best quotes about a filmmaker I think I've ever seen. Lane says, this is how you should attend the forthcoming retrospective of Melville's movies at Film Forum. Tell nobody what you're doing. Even your loved ones, especially your loved ones, must be kept in the dark. If it comes to a choice between smoking and talking, you smoke. Dress well, but without ostentation. Wear a raincoat, buttoned and belted, regardless of whether there is rain. Any revolver should be kept until you need it in the pocket of a coat. Finally, before you leave home, put your hat on. If you don't have a hat, you don't get to go. That is such a perfect encapsulation of how Melville's characters operate and look and act in his movies. So if that quote sounds appealing to you, please check out Army of Shadows and check out all of Melville's movies. I mean, this is easily one of the most anticipated films that I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about when we get to uh, episode 20 with our recap. It, it just, it sounds amazing. And and that's one of the things I absolutely love about this show is, you know, every once in a while we get those recommendations that we haven't seen. And Jimmy, just the way you describe it, I mean, I'm excited to see this. Really excited. I hope you like it, man. I really do. So before I get into my first pick, years ago, more than five years ago, I did an episode uh, on the history of the Motion Picture Association of America and spent some time talking about the Hayes Code. And and by the time this episode is released, I'll, uh, I'll re-release that episode so people can check that out. But because the subject matter is going to come up a few times during this episode, could you just briefly describe to the listeners exactly what the Hayes Code is? Sure. So the Hayes Production Code was a, a code, uh, and I won't get into all the nitty gritty because your episode covers all of that, but what it essentially was, was a self-censorship uh, system that the movie studios put in place to stave off government censorship. Uh, around the 30s, uh, the late 20s, early 30s, government was getting very upset with the adult content in movies, and there was a, a legitimate threat of actual congressional censorship. So the movie studios got together and put this code into place that would basically say, hey, we'll censor ourselves. We'll monitor ourselves. Please stay out of it. And that lasted for quite a long time, from the 30s until the 50s, it started to break down. And it's very similar to kind of in concept to the rating system that we have now. The difference is, is there was a real moral component to the rating to the Hayes Code. Uh, things like, you know, any sort of adult 
content, drug use, use of firearms, things like that couldn't be shown. And there had to be moral sort of arcs to characters. Uh, Villains had to be punished. They had to get what was coming to them. Extramarital affairs and things like that were to be dissuaded. It's actually one of the reasons we got, for those who've listened, you know, a few episodes ago, I recommended the Philadelphia story and talked about the comedy of remarriage, which was sort of a way to get around the Hayes Code to talk about affairs. You'd have characters be married, get divorced, have some dalliances, and they get remarried at the end so that it would comport with the Hayes Code. So the Hayes Code really had this moral component to it uh, that made it very burdensome and onerous. On one hand, it led to some very creative filmmaking, right? Constrictions and constraints are, are the mother of all innovations. So it led to some very creative filmmaking, but it was also stifling, oppressive, and and really burdensome for a lot of filmmakers. So around the 50s, we started to see little cracks. The Hayes Code started to lose its control and, and filmmakers started releasing movies without getting the Hayes Production Code seal of approval and still becoming big box office hits, which really hurt the ability of the Hayes Code to kind of control this stuff, which is how we ended up with the modern MPAA. They realized they had to do something different. Just really want to emphasize to listeners that at its in its heyday, when it was really being enforced, if a film was made that did not have the Hayes seal of approval, if you will, and it was shown in a movie theater, the owner of that theater could be fined, I mean, I don't have the hard numbers in front of me, but I want to say it was something like 25 to 30 grand for showing. That's a lot of money in the 1940s and the 1950s. Like they, I mean, you're right about the self-censorship, but for those that decided, that tried to sort of buck the system, there was some real consequences. Yeah, there absolutely. I mean, 20, 30 grand in the 40s would be enough. You know, that could put a movie theater out of business um, if it wasn't, you know, subsidized by the studios. So this is a, yeah, it was a big deal. And that's a perfect segue into my first pick because I'm going to talk about a movie that came out in 1960. And this is a, by a true definition of a film that said, you know, essentially, fuck you to the Hayes Code. And I'm talking about 1960s Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The basic plot of this film is Janet Lee plays Marion Crane. She is a secretary at a real estate firm and uh, the movie sort of opens up with her. She's been having an affair and she's sort of disillusioned and she sees and you know I don't want to get into the real nitty-gritty of the plot because it's it's something if you've never seen before you need to see it from the beginning because basically she sees an opportunity to get involved on a more regular basis with the person she's having an affair with and she takes that opportunity. When she's traveling along the way she stops at a motel. She meets the motel owner and I'm going to leave it there because I want to put a real emphasis on the fact that this was one of the original movies to really say we're not going to, we're just going to disregard the Hayes Code. The movie was incredibly shocking, incredibly controversial, has one of the most fantastic plot twists of any film ever made and it made a star out of uh, Anthony Perkins who plays the character of Norman Bates and I'm sure for most listeners out there they have a real general idea of Psycho even if they haven't seen it. And it's definitely a must watch for people that have not seen this film. 
Michael, I know you've seen Psycho. What are your thoughts on it? It's amazing. I, I absolutely love Psycho. I think this is a great recommendation. You know, Hitchcock is one of those directors that I'm, I'm not quite as familiar with as I should be. I, I've certainly seen plenty of his movies, some of which I really, really love, but I, I could be more familiar with him. Uh, but I am very familiar with Psycho. I've seen it several times. And you're right. It's going to be kind of hard to talk about it without getting into spoilers, but I'm going to do my best because the less, if you never actually actually seen this it is best to know absolutely nothing going into it because it goes in so many directions that especially in 1960 were just completely inconceivable to audiences that the film would go in these directions um, that it's really worth it to just go into it as blind as you can um, but I think this thing is an, is an absolute classic and you are right this is one of the movies that really kind of started punching holes in, in the Hayes Code and the Hayes Code's ability to sort of control this stuff because at its base level it still complies with a lot of the requirements of the Hayes Code, right? But obviously the way it does it, you got to imagine the people in the production code offices were like, well, that's not what we meant. And, <laughs> and so it just shows how these these brilliant directors that we started, not that we didn't have brilliant directors before, but in the 60s and 70s, we started getting these directors who were really willing and able to just challenge that code. And this is just such a fantastic movie. It's it, it kind of created the sort of the to a certain extent, the modern it's not really a slasher, but without Psycho, we don't have Halloween. We certainly don't have Friday the 13th or A Nightmare on Elm Street or, or any of the other movies that us horror nerds super love. Psycho gave us that. It wasn't the only one, but it's a, it's a foundation for modern horror. And so if you haven't seen it, I think this is one that absolutely needs to be seen. There's a couple things I want to point out about this film. And again, I agree with you 100%, Mike, like less you know, the better. But you know, this movie was made in 1960. It is shot in black and white and that was a conscious decision uh, to, to put the film out in black and white when most movies were being shot in technicolor at the time but re-watching it the other day and by the way i just want to say i think the black and white is super effective for this particular film but wh when i was watching it the other day it, it really dawned on me that this is a very contained story meaning that minimal characters minimal locations yet it is so effective it's a master class if you will but when, I, when you look at some of his other films you know hitchcock is you know what would you say mike you know he he does contain really well but he also does very broad at the same time would you agree absolutely so it's yeah. just um it's a very very good movie i'm just uh, i'm gushing over it but i want to talk about it but i can't maybe we'll do a, a dedicated episode just to psycho but it's not the 20th century movie club it's without asking a couple follow-ups to some subsequent films that came out after it so i have to ask your thoughts on psycho 2 3 the made for tv psycho 4 and i'd like to spend a little time talking about the gus van sant remake so what do you think so i haven't i've seen psycho 2 but i haven't seen it in a very long time i have noticed that amongst the my horror brothers and sisters it's been getting a bit of a reevaluation that it's a much better movie than it got credit for when it came out and i do know it's tom holland which is you know nothing wrong with tom holland as far not to be confused with spider-man tom holland uh this is fright night tom holland but uh it's uh it's one i i want to revisit i have not seen psycho 3 i have seen psycho 4 and it's 
it's not great. Um, it it does have Henry Thomas playing uh, a young Norman, which is kind of interesting, but it's not great. The remake is what I really want to zero in on because I think the remake is a fascinating failure. But what do you think of the the Psycho two, three, and four, Dana? So I have uh, I've seen Psycho two probably about two or three years ago. What's interesting about it is the sort of the evolution of the Norman Bates character because it takes place, you know, it takes place. 20 years, 20, 22 years after the events of Psycho. And I find Norman Bates' character in Psycho 2 to be as creepy as a character as I've seen, yet there's this whole dichotomy of, well, is he a good person now? And I, I'm trying to be super vague. Uh, Psycho 3, I think, is a surprisingly underrated film and and I was sort of looking for a little uh, affirmation with that and I went on to YouTube and I looked up Siskel and Ebert's review of Psycho 3 and they gave a very uh, a very positive, I wouldn't say it was a resounding thumbs up, but they gave it a positive review. Uh, Psycho 4 one time seen it, completely forgot it's out the window. But yeah, let's, let's definitely talk a little bit about the Gus Van Sand 1998 film because for those who haven't seen it, we live in a world where everything is, you know, reboots, remakes, soft reboots, you know, reimaginings, if you will. But what Gus Van Zandt did with this version of Psycho was a virtual shot for shot remake of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 almost identical, except it's in color and with different actors. And, and you know, at its base, I, I don't hate that concept. You know, we, we tend to not like that when it comes to movies, but I my wife and I just last weekend, we went and saw a, a Broadway play here. Um, we went and saw Rent again, and I've seen Rent uh, a handful of times. Flaws and all, I still love Rent. And, and that's common in Broadway, right? You have revivals and touring productions, and so you see the same source material performed by different actors and directed by different directors and everyone brings their own little bits to it. I think the remake of Psycho, Van Zandt's remake, stands out because we don't do that really in movies, right? When we remake a movie, we change it in some way. And, it, and if you don't, if, if it's just the same, people tend to kind of turn on the remake. The problem is the things that, for me, that Van Zandt does differently which is specifically the casting, I think he does worse than the original. And I think that's where the problem comes in. You know, for those who don't know, uh, the, the remake stars Anne H., uh, William H. Macy, Viggo Mortensen, Julianne Moore. But most importantly, it's got Vince Vaughn playing Norman Bates. And Anthony Perkins is so good as Norman in the first one. And, and even the... Regardless of what you think of the sequels, he brings it to that performance in every single one of those sequels. He is never, you know, Anthony Perkins had some very conflicted opinions about Norman Bates because of the effect it had on his career. But he never didn't play Norman to the best of his ability. And what made him so good, you know, you mentioned in Psycho 2 that he's kind of one of the creepiest characters you've ever seen. And again, trying to avoid spoilers, but I think just by cultural osmosis, people will know that Norman is is sort of not exactly who he presents to be at the start of the movie. What makes Anthony Perkins so great is one, he's an incredibly just attractive, nice looking guy. Like he doesn't look threatening or weird in the slightest. And so that's what makes him becoming creepier, more interesting. Vince Vaughn is a, a you know, actual human giant. He is he is a, a monster of a man. And 
even at his goofiest, always kind of looks a little unnerving. So the problem with the the remake is from minute one when Vince Vaughn appears, you're already like, "Mm, I don't know about that guy. Something's off about that guy. And to me, that kind of destroys a lot of the tension of the movie um, because you have to like Norman to start off the movie for the movie to work. Uh, What do you think about the remake, Dan? Well, I mean, I just kind of have to echo and second everything you said there. I I remember, I mean, I watched, I remember renting it on, on, gosh, it probably was VHS when that movie came out. I mean, I'm sure DVD was available back then, but I'm pretty sure I saw it on VHS and, you know, an old tube television. And by that point, very familiar with the original Psycho and, this is just, look, I make no bones about the fact that I, I don't think movies should be remade. And, you know, that's being said, this one just was so perplexing because it just, for me, it was like, why are we doing a shot for shot? Because why don't I just watch the original? But I also agree with what you're saying. You make a, a brilliant point about sort of the look of Anthony Perkins versus the look of Vince Vaughn. And also, you know, by that point, Vince Vaughn, he'd already done Swingers, and he has this sort of over-the-top personality. And there's a few actors, I always like to say, like a Ryan Reynolds and a Vince Vaughn. They have their their shtick, if you will, as far as, like, their personality traits. So to see Vince Vaughn in this very subdued manner in the beginning of the film... It was so against type, and and this is 98. I mean, Swinger's only been out for two years, you know, so it was just a very... Look, I can't make a movie on that level, but I can tell you this. I think that, that he was gravely miscast, so I certainly agree with you on that one. Yeah, I think that's the best. You know, this is no... no I, Vince Vaughn's done some really good work, and he's even done good work in dramas. You know, True Detective Season 2 was borderline unwatchable, but it was not unwatchable because of him. He was very good in it. He was great in S. Craig Zoller's Dragged Across Concrete, a a movie that I've mentioned before I have seriously conflicted feelings about. But again, Vaughn is great. He's badly miscast in this. Because even when Vaughn's being serious, he's threatening. When he's being fun, like even in Swinger's Right. Trent is threatening. Trent's an asshole. Like he is a threatening, overwhelming human being. That's part of why Mike kind of has to, you know, separate himself a little bit by the end of the movie from him. Vaughn can't do charming, inviting sort of subtly sneaking up behind you. It's just not how he works. And, and, And it really shows in this. He was badly miscast. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on the Bates Motel TV series? I, I'll be the first to admit I actually have never seen it, but I've heard very positive about it. Yeah, I've never seen it. I've never watched it. There's just too much content out there, to be honest with you. But I do know a lot of people whose opinions I trust seem to really like it. I've always thought that Freddie Highmore is a uh, very underappreciated young. I guess he's not as young anymore, but he started young, uh, young actor. And I, I think he's actually good good casting and Vera Farmiga is never not incredible in everything she does. So the casting's good. Like I said, I haven't seen it, but I know lots of people like it. If you're inclined to watch it, I would say go ahead and watch it. Absolutely. All right. So what do you got for your second pick of the episode? So my second pick is, again, one that's going to be kind of tied into the Hayes Code because it's the type of movie that could not have been made uh, had we not started to get cracks in the Hayes Code. And one of the directors, it's directed from one of the directors who really was one of the guys who started driving giant 
trucks through the Hayes Code, and that is Billy Wilder. So Billy Wilder released it. This is not my recommendation, but Billy Wilder released a movie called Some Like a Hot that is amazing. Um, it's probably a stay tuned for the 20th Century Movie Club at some point. And he did it without the uh, Hayes code, the production code, steel, seal of approval. And the movie was a huge hit. It was a massive success. It had a big cast. It had Marilyn Monroe in it. And that was kind of one of those watershed moments in the decline of the Hayes Code. So shortly after Some Like It Hot, he followed it up with a movie from 1960 called The Apartment. And that is my recommendation. So for those who haven't seen it, The Apartment stars Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, Jack Lemon plays a an office drone at an insurance company uh, named CC Bud Baxter, and Bud's just trying to, like we all do, he's trying to climb the corporate ladder. But he's got one advantage: he owns an apartment or rents an apartment that's very close to the offices, and he loans that apartment out to the corporate managers so that they can go use it for their extramarital affairs. And by doing that, he's sort of creating some some cachet with these people. So he starts getting promoted throughout the company. Uh, eventually, this situation comes to the attention of their HR director, a man by the name of Sheldrake, played by Fred McMurray, who wants to use the apartment and promises that if Bud lets him use the apartment, things are going to go well for him. At the same time, Bud is has got a little, he's a little sweet on the elevator operator, played by Shirley MacLaine, a girl by the name of Fran Kubelik. And it turns out that Miss Kubelik is Sheldrake's liaison. And I don't want to get into any more, but the sort of comedy goes from there. This is a, a very, very adult romantic comedy, especially for the 1960s. I and mean, we got things that in the 40s you couldn't even deal with, you know, extramarital affairs, premarital sex, uh, just and just the sort of the nasty way that people interact with one another. Nobody in this company is a good, likable person. Even Bud, to a certain extent, is a very flawed human being. He's not just a super likable guy. But this is Billy Wilder at his best. This is the kind of rapid-fire dialogue and humor that Billy Wilder did uh, about as well as anybody ever has. Have you ever seen The Apartment, Dana? You know, this is... this. Here we go. I'm, I'm now 0-2 for this episode. Although... To be fair, I've certainly heard of this film. And this one, uh, you know, like you said, this one was a little notorious for its time. That I, that I can recall. I'm yeah, and it, it, it did get, you know, it, it got all the critical acclamations. But yeah, there was definitely people that were upset about this. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter because, oh, 33rd annual Oscars, best picture, The Apartment. Best Director, Billy Wilder. Best Screenplay, IAL Diamond and Billy Wilder. Nominated Best Actor, Jack Lemmon. Nominated Best Actress, Shirley MacLaine. Like, this thing became a cultural moment. And because of that, the Hayes Code, the production code, couldn't really do anything about it um, because it was so popular and such a good movie that they kind of just had to take it. And again, we started seeing between this and Psycho coming out the same year, we started seeing more and more of those cracks in the uh, in the Hayes Code. Um, this is just such a great little romantic comedy. And for those who view you know, think of maybe Jack Lemon or Shirley MacLaine as 
characters they've played recently or not recently, but, you know, in, say, the 80s or 90s, Jack Lemmon and Grumpy Old Man and, and Shirley MacLaine in, like, terms of endearment, where she's the sort of overbearing matriarch. To see them at their most youthful and most vibrant is just such a delight because they're they're so I hate to just be regressive and say it, but they're so cute together and their interactions in this movie are so cute and you just want those two kids to work it out like this is just such a great romantic comedy if if you like romantic comedies this is definitely one that needs to be on everybody's list you know we're sitting there we're talking about 1960 we seem to be focusing on that year specifically and you know, if you're a, a, an avid cinephile back then, you're an avid movie watcher. And remember, this is this is still a time when you want to see a movie, you had to go to the theater. How exciting do you think that time would have been to just be a, a film fan? Oh, I think it would have been amazing. And especially if you were a cinemaphile who wasn't stuck in the ways to watch the the transition from 1960 to 1970 and to just see the, the sea changes that were happening in film would have just been amazing. Um, you know, going from starting with things like Psycho in the Apartment to ending with movies like Easy Rider at the end of the decade. I mean, how do we get from, you know, a, a black and white romantic comedy like The Apartment is boundary pushing it as it is to Easy Rider in 10 years. It's mind blowing. So it just would have been amazing to be alive at that time, I think. It really makes me wonder if, you know, it's 2019 now, you know, we're, we're going through an evolution, but it's really more of a uh, content distribution evolution, I think, more so than the boundaries being pushed because, Frankly, you can push as many boundaries as you want if you want to put a movie out there. Doesn't I don't necessarily mean theatrically, but if you want to get a film released. But I, I look at us less going through a content distribution revolution right now. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the most interesting thing about what's happening right now is it's never been easier to make and distribute a movie. Not that it's easy. It's incredibly difficult. But anybody can go out and use their iPhone. I mean, friggin' Steven Soderbergh is using iPhones to make movies now, you know? So that just tells you that the barrier to entry has never been lower. Now, the drawback to that is there's more content than there's ever been before. And I, I hate that word content, but it really is the best way to describe it. There's more content than there's ever been before. So standing out, the barrier to entry is lower than it's ever been, but the ability to be seen is higher than it's ever been. And so it is an interesting situation that we're in. And, and I'm curious to see when it stabilizes in five or 10 years, what what that landscape is going to look like. Oh, certainly keep our eyes open for that. That's for sure. Uh, any closing thoughts on the apartment? Uh, no, other than it's great. Everybody should see awesome. it. Awesome. Excellent. So for my second pick, you know, I was really kind of kicking around a few different themes and ideas as far as going with the 1960s, because I, I admittedly say and tell people that, you know, my knowledge base and a lot of this has to do with, with my age is, you know, 80s and 90s and 2000s. And, and I, I'm in love with a lot of movies from the 1970s. But, you know, my core is, is 80s and 90s. But I'm always interested in the genesis of ideas. I look at things that are even in pop culture today. And I ask myself, where did that originate? Where did the idea for this come? And as I was sort of just kind of perusing through YouTube and I was looking for this, it's this what's an ongoing theme that's really popular? And 
and it, and it just hit me. One of the biggest things, and it may, admittedly may have started to fizzle out a little bit, one of the biggest things over the past 10 years or so has been sort of the zombie craze. Again, like, where did this all originate? And I knew the answer because I did a, a really in-depth look at the evolution of uh, George A. Romero and his zombie franchises. And so we're going to go back to 1968 and we're going to talk about a movie called Night of the Living Dead. Like I just mentioned, directed by George A. Romero, written by Romero and his and his partner, John Russo. It is a movie that was made for $114,000. The plot of the film is going to sound very generic, but to understand Again, we ask everyone to take the Wayback Machine and go back to 1968, where this idea was incredibly fresh and incredibly terrifying. It is about a group of complete strangers that are forced to take refuge in a farmhouse in rural Pennsylvania as the zombie apocalypse breaks out. And what's fascinating about this movie, there's, well, there's multiple things that are fascinating about this movie, but a couple of things that I think are really interesting. One, I mentioned $114,000 budget. Two, the subtle ways that Romero and his production crew are able to let you know that this incident that is happening to our characters is happening around the world is just fascinating. And it kicked off a 50 plus year odyssey into our obsessions with zombies. And everybody has a plan, if you will, if the zombie apocalypse happens, the zombie outbreak. I mean, there are numerous people that have their zombie kits ready. One other thing I want to point out about this film is that it had an African-American lead actor in Dwayne Jones. And in 1968, that was incredibly rare. And in the eyes of some people, very controversial. And he is outstanding in this film. So, Mike, I know you've seen it. What are your thoughts on Night of the Living Dead? Well, I mean, what can I say? It's it's incredible. You know, Romero is rightfully thought of as a master for a reason, uh, in spite of some some pretty sad things that happened to him over his career as far as how his movies were treated. But it's pretty rare that we can, you know, we have a lot of sort of cultural and, and folklore monsters, vampires and werewolves and stuff like that. But it's pretty rare that we can trace our conception of a, a folklore monster to one specific point in time. And we absolutely can with this because prior to Night of the Living Dead, zombies were based on sort of the old voodoo conception of zombies, right? They were mindless slaves uh, under control of, of somebody uh, using magic or, or something along those lines. And I'm doing a big disservice to that. I, I understand that voodoo is actually a legitimate religion and I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm just saying kind of pop culturally, like you think of like uh, white zombie uh, or, you know, some of those 1930s zombie movies. These were all controlled carcasses, essentially. Romero is the one that really invented the whole idea of the living dead, the dead coming back to life as these ghoulish monsters who, as time has gone on, crave human flesh or, you know, based on a recommendation that you made a few episodes ago or brains or whatever it may be. We can really trace it to Night of the Living Dead. This is such a massively influential movie. And the thing that makes it so amazing is the goddamn thing's still holds up. 
Like the damn thing is still a great movie. It it isn't dated. It doesn't like you can still watch it. And again, this is one that was shot in black and white when almost every movie was being shot in color. And the black and white, the way Romero uses those inky shadows and those dark colors that you can really only get with black and white is just amazing in this movie. I mean, I, I have a hard time imagining that there's too many people to listen to this show that haven't seen it. But if you haven't seen it, you need to check it out. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the fact that you can check it out anywhere because unfortunately it fell into the public domain and Romero didn't make really even a penny off of this thing. So you can see it anywhere you want to. So there's no reason not to see it. You know, all your, you, and you're right. Well, it was something as simple as when they, when they finished the movie, they printed all the different copies of the movie. They had forgotten to put the copyright logo on the print. And there was a lot of savvy movie movie theater owners who recognized that and said, all right, well, there's no copyright on this, so I can just show this as much as I want. I can keep the profits all for myself and just basically immediately fell into public domain. What Romero did walk away with eventually was, you know, the rights, partial rights to what he created. And he was able to subsequently go on and make Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead all the different dead movies. One thing I thought was really interesting about this film, and I'm going to get into a little a little minor spoiler territory for Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, etc. And that is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I've seen these movies a number of times, but it, it's not really popping into my head right now. There's never really an explanation for why this is happening, correct? There is not. Uh, there's some, if I recall correctly, there's some vague radio broadcasts about uh, a comet. I think I, it's hard to remember because this movie's so influential that it's hard to remember what I'm pulling from sequels or remakes or stuff like that. But it, he doesn't explicitly make it clear. I know that even if there is something in there, it's vague and kind of in the background. There's never like a, hey, this is why the zombies are coming. It's not like Resident Evil where we've got like the T-virus that's bringing zombies back. What are your thoughts on the Romero dead movies that came out? Dawn of the Dead is an absolute classic. Um, I don't... I have to admit, I'm so kind of over zombies that it's somewhat colored my view of, of these. But I mean, Dawn of the Dead's an absolute classic. I'm not the biggest fan of Day of the Dead. I get what he was trying to do. But then me being the weird guy who defends garbage movies. I actually love Land of the Dead. I know a lot of people hate that movie. I love it. I think Romero actually accomplished exactly what he set out to do in that movie. And it makes, it's got the exact same social commentary that his movies are known for. So I will actually defend uh, Land of the Dead that most people tend to think is garbage. Um, I think it's a much better movie than people give it credit for. His found footage ones, I don't love, but that's also more like found footage bias. So like Diary of the Dead, and I can't remember what the last one was, but I'm not a big fan of those. So for me, I, I second what you said about Dawn of the Dead. It's you know it's, it's blatant criticism on consumerism. If anyone's if anyone's sort of looking at the big picture of that film, I am uh, I'm the opposite when it comes to Day of the Dead and Land of the Dead. I think uh, well, I really with Day of the Dead. To me, it's it's the end. To me, that's where to me the story ends because the bleakness by this point, when 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 Dawn of the Dead opens up, this crisis is just happening. You know, the, people are still on the air reporting about this, and people are still trying to figure out what's going on. By the time we get to Day of the Dead, I mean this this is it. I mean, there's a handful of survivors, and they're tearing each other up 
uh, pardon the pun, they're tearing each other apart. Not even, not even with the zombies. Uh, I just, I really liked the bleakness about Day of the Dead, where I thought Land of the Dead was, uh, again, I get exactly what he was saying about the class system in, 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 in I'm assuming he's talking about the class system in America or, or any, you know, first world nation. But, I just thought there was too much going on with that film. There's too many characters and too many, for the fact of the matter, it's just too many survivors after what was going on with Day of the Dead. So that's just my thought on it. Um, I actually haven't seen the found footage films. I think I tried to watch one one time and uh, I tried to watch one and like five minutes into it, I was like, this is this is not for me. This is not something I want to watch right now. Yeah, I, I don't think he... I mean, I know why he made them part of it is, you know, and for those who don't know, Romero, maybe second only to Toby Hooper, got screwed in his career. You know, his movies very rarely made money. Uh, he had a lot of promises from studios that then fell through that were supposed to be, you know, I, I don't know. People may know this, but like Romero was hired to write and direct Resident Evil and wrote a script that was actually really, really well done and really consistent with the games. Um, and it, I think it would have been a very fantastic movie. It fell through. They hired Paul Anderson. And I like the Resident Evil movies because, again, let me make this clear to listeners because sometimes I get tweets. I defend garbage movies, people. That's what I do. Um, but nonetheless, I like the Resident Evil movies. But a Romero Resident Evil are you kidding me? That would have been amazing. And he had that happen so often in his career. And I think with the found footage uh, dead movies, you know, it was, well, I can make found footage movies cheap because nobody's going to give me money and found footage is popular. They just didn't feel like they almost didn't feel like Romero movies to me. You know, Land of the Dead, like it or not. Romero is through that entire movie. You watch that movie and maybe it doesn't work for you, but you're like, yep, that that fucking George Romero directed that movie. Uh, the the found footage ones, I, I they just don't have his fill, uh, at least for me. But I guess we also do kind of need to talk about Zack Snyder's remake. What do you think of, of the Dawn of the Dead remake, Dana? I love it. And I'm just going to tell you right now, it's my favorite Zack Snyder film, hands down. And, and I am... I'm not, I guess, I know I'm not going to go on a Zack Snyder tangent because, again, I want to emphasize, I could never make a movie of that level. So it's hard for me, as I'm getting a little bit older, it's harder for me to, to, to sort of pick apart directors' visions. That being said, you know, some of his movies I, I, I can do without, some of the movies, movies I really like. I'm, I'm a, a big defender of The Watchmen. I think that is a fantastic film. But the question you asked me was, what do I think of Dawn of the Dead? It is Amazing. This is the 2004 remake that stars uh, Sarah Polly, who is one of my favorite actresses who's who's often behind the camera more these days than she is in front of the camera. And I just love it. I think it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I so let me be clear. Snyder bros do not attack us. We like Dawn of the Dead. I love Dawn of the Dead. You know, we talk a lot about remakes on this show. Obviously, it's kind of what we do. But to me, this is how you do a remake, right? It, it It's close enough to the original that it still has the same DNA, but it's different enough that you can watch them both and get something new out of it. Uh, Sarah Pauly's amazing. Ving Reigns is amazing. I've always had, for reasons that I can't describe, a soft spot for Jake Weber, and I love that he gets to be basically the male lead in this movie. Um, he's great in U571, if people haven't seen that. You know, you got Ty Burrell playing the asshole, like proto 
uh, modern family Ty Burrell playing the asshole in this one, and he's so good at it. Like, he's just such a son of a bitch. There's some weird decisions that Snyder makes uh, that I won't get into for fear of spoilers, but the movie moves. It's intense. The zombies are scary as hell. He he uses the Danny Boyle fast zombies, which I know purists don't like, but I think in this movie it makes them scary as hell. This is just a balls-out awesome horror movie I, I there's really nothing else to say about it if you want an awesome horror movie Zack snyder's dawn of the dead is definitely gonna scratch that itch and what i like about it is much like the original dawn of the dead it's the original dawn of the dead just starts and we're into it there's no setup like this is happening essentially that's how the the 2004 remake gets going you know sarah Polly wakes up and we're off to the races and it never stops. It's just it's incredible. Yeah, it, it, it's the the movie feels like it's 20 minutes long because it just moves. And I, I'm with you. I think it's hands down Snyder's best movie. I can usually find things to speak praise of in all of Zack Snyder's movies. I think he's an incredibly flawed, difficult filmmaker. But this is by far and away his his most complete and and best movie. He he almost kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, not to go off on too much of a tangent of Michael Bay, where their best work was when they were constrained, when they didn't have these massive budgets and free reign. And they had to be creative and interesting because both of them kind of started high and then have slowly gone down as their careers have gone on. But uh, regardless of what you think of Zack Snyder, Dawn of the Dead is is highly recommended. If it if it wasn't 2004, we for sure would have recommended it as one of the movies on this show um, because it's that goddamn good. 100%. And just one more quick question about the zombie thing, and then we'll move on to your third pick. Uh, the Walking Dead. Ever get into it? Uh, got into the comic, which uh, coincidentally, this is good timing for those who don't know. The comic just surprisingly ended uh, this. We're recording this on July 7th. The comic ended this week. Uh, they surprise dropped the last issue. So the comic is over. I read the comic for about five years. I watched the first two episodes or the first two seasons of the TV show. Honestly, Walking Dead is part of why I'm just sort of done with zombies. I thought the second season where they were basically at a farm for the entire season due to budget reasons was just, it kind of killed my interest. I know lots of people love it. I mean, my God, the thing is a multi, probably billion dollar industry at this point. There's what, two or three different series, the comics, they're making movies. So obviously lots of people love it. It's just not really for me. Um, did you ever get into it? I watched the first season uh, which I think, if I'm, again, listeners will correct me if I'm wrong here. It's six or seven episodes long. If I recall, it's not that long of a, of a first season. And got started to watch the second, the first episode of the second season. And I, I slowly began to realize, and, and again, listeners, don't beat me up over this one, that I, I began to think that the basic gist of each season was we have to get somewhere. We'll get there. Turns out that's not where we need to be. We better go somewhere else. And everything else in between is just filler for them to get from one point to the other. Look, I know I'm super glossing over that, but that was kind of the vibe I was getting from it. And I just said, you know, like you've said before, Mike, there's just too much content out there. And, you know, putting together a couple hours, even on a Sunday for me, can be a little bit difficult. So there was just other things I wanted to watch. 
Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And the thing with Walking Dead is, you know, so much of zombie fiction, whether it's cinema or literature or comics or is the actual monsters are us, not the zombies. And and man, Walking Dead, just even in the comics, which like I said, I read for about five years, even the comics, just they beat that nail so many times that it's just like, OK, I get it. We suck. The zombies are fine. Like it, it again. I know it's super popular, but it's not my zombie thing. I much prefer sort of something that brings something a little different, like Shaun of the Dead, or there's a, a Japanese zombie movie called Versus that I'm going to throw out there that's just insanely cool and fun. Uh, I want more sort of unique things from my zombie movies at this point. All right, Mike, what do you got for your third pick of the episode? So my third pick is a Western, and it's uh, my pick, my vote for the best Western of all time. Now, there's been a lot of great Westerns. Westerns is a genre that we tend to not pay as much attention to now. You know, that's part of the reason I recommended Silverado a few episodes ago. This is my pick for the best Western of all time. It's certainly my favorite, and it's from my favorite Western director. I mentioned when I talked about Melville how influential he was on uh, a lot of my favorite directors. Uh, this director is an Italian director. He is equally as influential on most of those same directors. And that is a director by the name of Sergio Leone. Now, most people know Leone because he directed uh, what became known as the Man With No Name trilogy. Uh, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, all starring Clint Eastwood. He's the person that made Clint Eastwood the Clint Eastwood that he is. But I actually think his best Western doesn't star Clint Eastwood. It's from 1968, and it is an epic Western called Once Upon a Time in the West. For those who haven't seen it again, I'm not going to get into too many spoiler details, but what we have in Once Upon a Time in the West is Claudia Cardinal plays a widow. Uh, she's a woman who's traveling to this, this small town to be with her new husband. The new husband owns this land that the railroad is going to go through and a uh, wealthy, corrupt landowner, uh, businessman wants the husband and the family off this so he can buy the land and make money when the railroad comes through. He actually ends up hiring a group of bad guys of bandits uh, led by Henry Fonda in one of the best Henry Fonda roles in a very long and distinguished career because this man is evil incarnate in this movie and it works so well because Henry I'll get to it in a minute the way Leone shoots it but this is just perfect casting with Fonda uh, and this all happens at the start of the movie kills the the husband and the family but Claudia Cardinal is not there yet so she still owns the land so the movie's about them trying to run her off the land into this situation walks a, an outlaw named Cheyenne played by Jason Robards and a very very mysterious gunman uh, harmonica playing gunman known only as harmonica played by Charles Bronson and harmonica is there with a very specific purpose and that purpose has to do with Henry Fonda and I won't say any more but all of these various parties intersect in a epic story that ultimately ends as you would expect from a Sergio Leone movie in some of the most amazing shootouts and and gunfights that you will ever see in a movie. Have you ever seen Once Upon a Time in the West, Dana? This one I haven't seen. I have seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and I've seen For a Few Dollars More. And I have, of course, seen Once Upon a Time in America, which would come out several years later. 
This one I haven't seen, and it's not for a lack of not wanting to see it. It's just, it's again, to use a, a, a cliche quote that we use quite a bit now, it's a, it fell through the cracks. But one thing I thought was really interesting about Leone was, he was I think he was, he was born in 1929. So he was, he was just in his 30s when he made these films. You know, like he, he passed away in 89 at age 60. Like he was a young guy making these films. Like you think about Sergio Leone, he's such a a master of what he does. You think at in these, this is when he was really at his peak. You know, you you envision somebody who's in their fifties or sixties. You know, he was a relatively young guy when he made this movie. It's kind of incredible. It, it absolutely is. He was so you know that that whole sixties spaghetti western era was just so fascinating because you had so many vibrant. One of the things that cinema, I truly believe, needs on a regular basis is an an infusion of youth. I, not not that I want to be like, look, I'm I'm not a young man anymore. As much as it pains me to say it, I'm not a young man anymore. I'm, you know, I'm 42. But what really, if you think about eras in which cinema has like moved forward, it's usually been when we've gotten an infusion of youth, whether it's the French New Wave and young guys like Godard or Italian spaghetti westerns with Leone in his 30s making these all-time classics um, or even going a little more you know recently sort of the indie revolution that we've talked about a bit with Soderbergh and Tarantino I mean these guys are in their 20s when they're making these movies and I think you need that young way of thinking to sort of drive movies forward I, I think people as they get older you know Perfect example. God love him. He's amazing. He's one of the greatest directors of all time. But have we seen a Steven Spielberg movie in the last 10 years that we've really felt like has moved cinema forward? Not that they haven't been good. He's made a lot of good movies in the last 10 years. But have they really had that same transcendent, this is something I've never seen before, verve that Jaws or Raiders had when he was younger. People, we all do it. We tend to get stuck in our ways and we tend to get stuck in our habits. And so I think you need that infusion of youth. And Leone damn sure brought that to the Western genre because he turned the Western genre on its head by making these epic but almost nihilistic, certainly grittier Westerns than had ever been seen before. And this, like I said, I think this is his masterpiece. I think Once Upon a Time in America is brilliant, especially if you've seen the director's cut. I love the Man with No Name trilogy, but this is the one where I think every single aspect of the movie works. Uh, Like I said, casting Henry Fonda, and and Fonda was very hesitant to take the role because he's such a bad guy in this, but Leone shoots him, you know, for those who don't know, Henry Fonda had some of the most shockingly blue eyes you will ever see and Leone uses those he's he's clad all in black but then you've got these just bright blue eyes and when he stares down people as he's about to kill them or do other bad things it, it's almost chilling how good Fonda is in this movie so yeah I, I Dana I think this is one that you definitely need to check out because I think this thing is just absolutely fantastic you know I have to comment on something you said about Spielberg because the reality of what you said has just really sunk in. And I'm a huge Spielberg fan, obviously. But you're right. And I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I'm starting to think about it. I mean, what was the truly last impactful film he made? I mean, I guess I would make the argument that it was 98 Saving Private Ryan. I think every film after that has been, and for the most part, a very good movie. 
And, and mo- for the most part, like I look at uh, Catch Me If You Can, Minority Report. I, I like the War of the Worlds movie. But the more I've just started thinking about it, I'm like, I think like Jurassic Park was his last real big epic. We've never seen anything like that before. And then Save a Private Ryan. And then after that, oh, you know, it's the reality hitting me in the face after what you have. If you just said that, because I never thought about it. Well, and don't get me wrong. I love Spielberg. Dude, I even liked Ready Player One, which is going to get me blasted. Like I, Spielberg still makes good movies. Yeah. But you're right. I think sh- or I think Saving Private Ryan is the last time where I really felt like he was trying to push himself forward. Uh, you know, that opening battle in Saving Private Ryan was something that nobody had ever seen before. And and that's the last time I felt that watching a Spielberg movie. Uh, what I feel like we get with Spielberg now is a very, very competent, and I don't mean competent in like the, just these baseline competent. I mean, we get a man who's a master at his craft making movies that are masters of their craft, but they're not moving us forward. They're not changing the game any. You got to look to the younger folk to change the game because I just, yeah, I just think that's the way. Even look at Martin Scorsese. Like, yeah. when was the last time you saw a Scorsese movie that you really felt like was an absolute game changer? Goodfellas? You know, I, and I'm sure somebody's going to hit me with a thousand different, well, Scorsese did this, but like, when was the last time you really watched a Scorsese movie and went, I've never seen a movie like this before in my life? Yeah. Uh, no, no, you're right. I, I would like to say, Honorable mention to Munich, which I think is a, a fantastic film. As I, I know I'm sitting there saying Saber Pride Ryan, but Munich, I think, impacted me quite a bit when I saw it in the theater. So I give that one an honorable mention. Yeah, and Munich's brilliant. No question about that. Yeah. You know, look, I know The Departed won Best Picture. I, I get that. And I thought it was good. But you asked me, hey, would you rather sit down and watch Goodfellas or The Departed? That's not even a question. Yeah. And for me, even The Departed, you know, as as it's well known, I'm a Hong Kong and, and Chinese movie nerd. For me, The Departed, it's a remake. It's a remake of a Hong Kong movie called Infernal Affairs. So I'd actually rather watch Infernal Affairs. You know, it's and again, please don't misunderstand. I'm not bagging on these people because even Leone, you know, Leone, his career blew up before he had the chance to become that guy, right? Like he spent so much time on Once Upon a Time in America that it just kind of killed his desire to make movies. And Melville died before he could become that. Like all great directors, I think, eventually become set in their ways. That's why we need the constant infusion of of youth to change things forward. The one director I will say that I don't think rests on his laurels like that is Steven Soderbergh, because Soderbergh is always trying new things and always trying to change himself and and adapt and become somebody different with almost every single movie. But I think he's the exception, not the rule. We'll have to do a discussion about Once Upon a Time in America at some point, because I did get an opportunity to see the the director's cut of that film. And it's 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 something else. And I mean that in a good way. Oh, it absolutely is. It's it's it's, it's, and it's not it's not in the pop culture lexicon like other you know, brilliant gangster films. And that, that, that to me, that's always been perplexing. Like there's, it just doesn't, I mean, true purists know what that movie is, but it's not in the, the, the lexicon. It's not talked about the way the Godfather or Goodfellas is, and it absolutely 100% should be. All right. So for my third pick of the episode, I was really torn on this one because I wanted to pick an actor that really sort of embodied the 1960s and there was a few that immediately came to mind you know you you mentioned the man with no name trilogy clint eastwood thought a lot about 
recommending uh, a Steve McQueen film because there's there's quite a few that came out. I mean, honorable mention to Bullet. If you've never seen that, that's a fantastic movie. Uh, but I decided to go with Paul Newman. There was a couple of Paul Newman films that I I watched over the past weekend, and the one that I, listen, the one that I always seem to go back to the most, the one that I think exemplifies what makes him so fantastic, is going to be 1967's Stuart Rosenberg directed film Cool Hand Luke. And if you've never seen Cool Hand Luke, what starts out as a, a somewhat simple premise and a somewhat simple plot, Paul Newman plays Lucas Luke Jackson. He is. Uh, He's arrested for drunken disorderly conduct. He, beginning of the film, he's cutting the heads off of parking meters. He is sentenced to two years at a prison labor camp in Florida. Now, the movie quickly introduces a, a ragtag cast of characters from the fellow prisoners to the, the, the warden to the, to the walking boss to everyone who, who's, you, you get sort of a, you don't even know wh- what direction this movie's gonna go when you first start watching it. All you need to know is that Newman's incredible. George Kennedy, who plays a character named Dragline, who won Best Supporting Actors, is outstanding. It introduces a world that most of us probably will never get to experience and uh, sort of sets the tone. That's a world we probably don't want to experience. What do you think of Cool Hand Luke, Mike? Oh, I fucking love it. I love this recommendation. I'm actually glad you made it because this was my sort of fourth pick for this episode and it killed me to not be able to talk about it so i get the best of both worlds you recommended it and i get to talk about it um this was also when we put out the call for recommendations this was one that was frequently recommended i know uh carmelita valdez mccoy our our good friend she recommended it and it's a perfect movie to talk about for the 60s because it's such a 60s movie you know there's certain times that movies can only be made in the time in which they're made and and i think cool hand luke is one of those easy rider would be another one you know this is such a movie about without getting into any spoilers it's about the counter culture uh that is luke not that he's counting he's not like a hippie but the idea that we get in the 60s of pushing back against authority pushing back against society as well as things like sort of how does that affect justice and fairness and equity in society you know like you mentioned He's he's arrested for cutting off the heads of parking meters. Why? Well, because parking meters are such an emblematic totem of the man, right? You have to pay to park. And so Luke is cutting the heads off because that seems like a just thing to do. And so much of the movie is about him trying to exist in this world where he's a true individual in dealing with a system that is just bound and determined to beat that individuality out of him. And that's such a late 60s theme for a movie. But then on top of that, you just have Paul Newman doing what Paul Newman does. I I love Paul Newman. I think he was amazing. I'm not sure he ever turned in a bad performance in his career, but I'm not sure that he was ever better than he was in this movie. I mean, he has to carry this movie on his shoulders. There's good supporting cast. You know, you mentioned George Kennedy, but we've also got to talk about Struther Martin. What we have here is failure to communicate. For those who haven't seen the movie, it's also the opening dialogue of Guns N' Roses Civil War, which is one of the best songs ever. Um, But like, there's just a great cast throughout all this, but all of it has to revolve around Newman. And he he just owns this movie. He just carries this entire movie on his shoulders. And the end, again, without getting into spoilers, he sort of has a monologue at the end that is one of my favorite scenes in a movie ever. I, I, I think it's just it's it to quote, uh, you know, 
Elric Kane and uh, and his pure uh, pure cinema podcast. It's pure cinema. It's exactly why we go to movies. Is Paul Newman having this monologue in this room? I don't even want to say what type of room it is. That's why we go to movies. That's what movies do for us. I love this recommendation, man. Movies can be very visceral when you watch them. And when I was watching this the other day, it struck me that you know he's he's in Florida and he's a, like I said he's in a prison work camp and you know a good portion of the film is them out working and most of the time they're just cutting tall grass and weeds uh, along the highways along these long stretches of highway and it just looks so backbreaking but couple that in with just how uncomfortable they must have been because again it's florida and i live in florida and I don't spend this time of the year. It's July right now. It feels like it's 109 degrees outside. So I don't spend a lot of time outdoors during the day. You know, this is why uh, most of my friends and I, we go out at night because it's just if we're going to go out and sit out and have some drinks or whatever, because it's just too hot during the day to do this. And Rosenberg does such a great job of painting what it must be like for them on a day-to-day basis. I mean, they're covered in dirt. They're covered in, the, you know, the weeds and the grass. It's just so intense. You can almost smell it, right? Like the smell, because you know these dudes are just wafting. Because I, much like you, I used to live in Georgia. My wife used to live in Vegas. Uh, we were long distance for a bit, so I'd go to Vegas all the time. And, and Vegas in the summer, it's not as humid. But, you know, when it's 114 degrees outside, you basically leap from air conditioning to air conditioning, right? You you try to spend as little time outdoors as you can. And these guys are out there. And just the way Rosenberg shoots it, you can, you can almost smell the body odor and the dirt and the grime coming off of all these actors. It's really evocative the way the movie is shot. We can talk about it over and over again, but it is really Paul Newman at his best. I mean, are there any other of his movies that I know there's going to be a, a plenty more that will be recommended throughout the, the, the time that we do this series, but are there any Newman, other Newman films that just immediately pop out to you maybe from the sixties? I thought about doing the hustler, which I also think is a very good film. The Hustler would definitely 100% be, be one. I would, I would certainly recommend doing a double feature of The Hustler and Color of Money because Color of Money is a, a very, very late sequel to The Hustler, but it's directed by Martin Scorsese and it's absolutely fantastic. And it's got Tom Cruise in one of his best performances. Uh, the two that I kind of want to single out a little bit, uh, we had talked a little bit off air about disaster movies and one that I do think people should check out is The Towering Inferno. It's a it's a disaster movie. It's a 70s disaster movie. I think it's the best one. It's got all of the hallmarks of 70s disaster movies, but the two leads are Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. You just are never going to go wrong if your two leads are Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. And then the other one I'd recommend, because it's probably one I won't actually recommend on the show, but I think people should check it out. It's a much later one. It's from 1994 called Nobody's Fool. And it is also going to be in, I would say, maybe the top five Paul Newman performances. He's much older and the movie steers into that. It's about him being this older, broken down character. And he's he's as good in it as I think he is in Cool Hand Luke. If I recall, because it's been 25 years, he was nominated. Did he win or was he nominated for Best Supporting Actor in that film? Or was he Best actor. He was nominated. He was nominated for best actor. Best actor. He did okay. not win it, but he was nominated for best actor. If uh, if I could add one more to the list, and oh, what? Just a side note on Towering Inferno because it's been a few years since I've seen it. They don't share a lot of screen time on that in that movie, correct? They do not. So you actually almost get 
two for one because whatever scene you're watching, you're going to have either McQueen or Newman in it. But they do come together at the end of the movie. They're the two. It's not a spoiler for people to know that they eventually put the fire out. They come together. They come together and they're the two that have to have kind of the big heroic action scene at the end to put the fire out. And I don't know if I'm if I'm making this up or if I remember reading it. One of the reasons why they didn't have a lot of screen time together was there was some some egos in the way. I can't confirm that, but there's certainly nothing about that that would surprise me, especially from McQueen. Uh, I love McQueen, but he was known to be kind of insufferable to work with. Yeah, and I remember that there was even if you look at the way the the poster, the way the, their their names are, who premieres at the top left and the top right. I mean, it's just I mean, I, apparently I, I'm going to do a little more research. Listeners will let me know, but I, I'm sure I remember hearing rumblings about those two maybe not getting along too well, and McQueen having a lot to do with it. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. The uh, the other one I'd recommend, of course, and I know you've probably seen it multiple times, is The Verdict, which I think is just a, an amazing film. And, and one that I think is, again, lost a little bit to the sands of time. Maybe not so much in the legal community, but I just think in general. And I definitely do think that The Verdict is a good one for us to do down the road of People versus On because there's actually a lot of really interesting evidence stuff, which sounds boring as hell, but I promise I can make it interesting. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting evidence stuff going on in that movie. What we like to do at the end of each episode is we want to give the listeners an opportunity to find and watch the movies that we have recommended. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you first for your recommendations. Sure. So, Army of Shadows, uh, the best place to see it. It's available for rent on iTunes or Vudu, but the best place to see it is a a service. It's relatively new. Uh, I finally signed up for it and I don't regret it in the slightest, which is the Criterion channel. 15 bucks a month or if you buy it at a year, uh, I think it's less. I think it ends up being about 10 bucks a month and it is worth every penny. Um, Pretty much every every movie, not all of them because Criterion sometimes loses licenses, but most of the movies that have been put out in the Criterion collection end up on the Criterion channel and they have Army of Shadows and if you're interested in more Melville movies they have about three or four other Melville movies including Les Samurai so I strongly encourage people if they want to see Army of Shadows just sign up for the week they've got a week free preview just sign up for the week free preview of the Criterion channel because I think if you do you'll probably keep the subscription not sponsored this is 100% just my opinion of the Criterion channel I think it's worth it Um, but like I said you can also rent it on iTunes or Vudu if you want to just see it that way. The apartment is available for rent or available for rent or purchase on all major streaming platforms. I do want to also shout out because uh, as I've said before, I love physical media. Arrow has a very nice Blu-ray of it. Periodically, Barnes & Noble will have a 50% off sale on Arrow Blu-rays. They currently, as of July 7th, have one going on for the month of July here in 2019. You can get it for 50% off. I'd actually recommend that because the Blu-ray is worth it. But if you don't, it's available for renting, rental or streaming everywhere. Um, And then Once Upon a Time in the West, if you have a Star's subscription. It's streaming on stars. You can either get the dedicated stars app or get an Amazon channel, or you can rent or purchase it on all your major streaming services. So Psycho is going to be available. It's not streaming anywhere right now, but it's available for rent and purchase across all major platforms. Cool Hand Luke, same scenario, not streaming anywhere at the moment, available across all platforms. And Night of the Living Dead, like I didn't even have to look this one up. I know we like to use the Just Watch app when trying to figure out where everything is available. I didn't have to use it because this movie is available 
everywhere. We talked about it being in the public domain. You can go on YouTube, you can type in Night of the Living Dead, and you'll probably get 400 search results of the full movie. It's available. Uh, Mike, tell them, tell listeners a little bit about uh, how you can go to any, you know, Best Buy, Walmart, any type of place, and you can get, you know, the 600 movies in one, and it's all, they're always going to have Night of the Living Dead part of it. Yeah, I, I'm looking over on my shelf. I have a, it's a Mill Creek collection. It's uh, Drive In Cult Cinema. It's got over 200 movies. It cost me 25 bucks, I think, and it's an awesome set. I actually recommend it. If you like exploitation or drive in cinema, it's fantastic. But it's got Night of the Living Dead. I've got another one that I'm looking at that's called Nightmare Worlds that has Night of the Living Dead. If you buy any of these, multi-packs. They're always going to have Night of the Living Dead because quite frankly, unless it was made pre like 1923, I think is where the cutoff is. There's no better movie in the public domain than Night of the Living Dead. So all of these packages are going to have Night of the Living Dead. You buy a $5, 10 scariest movies of all time. Nine of them are going to be garbage and one of them is going to be one of the greatest movies of all time in Night of the Living Dead. So you of all the movies I think we've ever recommended on this show, this is the one that there is the you have the least excuse for not watching because you can't sneeze without finding a free or cheap version of Night of the Living Dead. I will say Criterion a couple years ago put out a beautiful Blu-ray of it. So if you like it, you know, maybe actually kick the money in and get a real version of it. But you can legally stream it anywhere you want. And if I could just add, if you've never watched this movie before, I implore you, watch it on a big on a big screen. Don't watch it on your seven inch or six inch or four inch smartphone. I know I watch a lot of content on my phone. I watch hours of YouTube on my phone. But when I'm watching a movie for the very first time, it, it goes up on the on the 60 inch flat screen. So I just implore you, it's going to be so easy for you to find it on YouTube. Watch it on a big TV. I second that, especially because you need really... You need those inky blacks and you need that depth that Romero was so good at creating. Okay, Mike, so if people want to follow you on social media. I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and I'm also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where if you follow me, you will find uh, our continually updating list of movies that we have recommended on the 20th Century Movie Club. I update it a few days after this episode goes live on the main feed. Uh, We are currently at uh, 81 movies, so we will uh, be crossing over into triple digits here very, very soon. And if you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler. I have an Instagram page set up, which is at the Dana Buckler show. You can email the show with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com. All right, Mike, thanks for being on volume 15. Looking forward to doing 16 very soon. Me as well, sir. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. You too. And my name is Dana Buckler. And thank you so much for listening.